0: This special monthly UBU episode on hashtag Black Mental Health is sponsored by Janta Neuroscience and supported by The Painted Brain, a California peer-run organization. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Unapologetically Black Unicorns, or welcome back if you've been here before. This is a special episode, our hashtag Black Mental Health, We're going to be talking about what else? Our Black mental health. Why not? Such an important topic. And I have a wonderful, wonderful guest today, Dr. Christy Hagens from Safe Black Space. And um, rather than me do a long bio introduction, I am going to let Dr. Christy Hagens introduce herself. So take it away.
1: All right. Well, thank you, first of all, for the invitation to be here with you, to share um, with the listeners and to talk a little bit about kind of what I do and, and who I am and safe black space and black mental health, all of that. I guess I'm getting ahead of myself. You want to know who I am. So my name is Dr. Christy Higgins. I um, am a community healer an African-centered psychologist, a professor, a consultant. I do a number of different things, but my primary position and role is as the executive director of Safe Black Space. And Safe Black Space is a what I refer to as a growing, developing kind of baby nonprofit that um, started after the uh, untimely death and killing of Stefan Clark here in Sacramento in 2018, 19, 2020. I sometimes get off in terms of my sense of time. I don't know about you, but with COVID, I'm like, what year was that? And yes. Now, but that is uh, my role. And as I mentioned, we are developing nonprofit, and our focus really is on attending to Black health and wellness understanding the impact in particular of anti-Blackness and racism on Black people, and creating a a container for us to understand what we may be experiencing, to tap into some of our kind of more ancient or cultural kind of wisdom, and to identify ways that we can cope as well as thrive in the midst of a world that in many ways does not see our humanity.
0: Wow, that is a heck of a lot, first of all, but so glad you're doing all of that work, especially for a Black community. And where is Safe Black Space located? So we are
1: housed and kind of work primarily out of the Sacramento area. As I mentioned, you know, with Stefana Clark getting killed here, that was when when I and a few other folks kind of really responded to the call to the need here locally. But with COVID, we have the capacity to really reach far beyond the Sacramento area. So our primary service and program is community healing circles, safe Black space, uh, specifically for people of African ancestry, right, with a lived Black experience. And we've been able to shift them to an online format. Um, And so we tend to offer our circles regularly every second Saturday from 3 to 4.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time via Zoom. And um, that has allowed us to have reach not only across California, but across the states and even internationally. So we have people that uh, participate from Costa Rica, from the UK, from San Diego, from back east, from Oakland. But yes, we are housed um, out of Sacramento. And I say housed, but we don't have a physical location, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But but myself and uh, the majority of the team, our village of volunteers are operating out of uh, Northern California.
0: Wow. Wow. So when I first heard about Safe Black Space, I thought, I want to say black space, (laughs) you know, because sometimes, you know, day to day life, it's a little rough, you know, you know, as we're doing the work, as we're leading our lives, as we're helping our children, you know, in community and so forth. So, you know, where do we go where people will understand us from that cultural perspective? Mm -hmm. So how do people engage with safe black space? Like, what does it feel like if I'm like, let me look this up and I find it on the internet or I find it because we've had this podcast and um, I want to figure out, well, how do I engage in, you know, where do I start? What does it look like? What does it feel like?
1: Sure, sure. I'll I'll respond to that. But do you want to back up and say, yeah, we do need safe black space, all of us at least who identify as black, because the world, again, as we're living in, we're facing hits um, from all different directions, whether it's our workplace, whether it's our education, the field or um, where it is that we live. And so, um, again, part of what we are intending to do is to help people at least identify with how to tap into that their internal sense of safety and um, comfort with their blackness. And then figuring out, again, ways to, to build that sense of safety and wellness outside of Of course, they're they're typical, maybe within their four walls or whatever. But if people are interested in uh, knowing more about Safe Black Space or how to access us, they can literally just Google Safe Black Space. It'll take you to our website. Um, We will typically a few weeks before we are launching our next circle, we will have a flyer available, a registration um, link so that folks can uh, log into that and get registered and participate. Um, we also do other events. And so people will have an opportunity as well to potentially, we have a, a book study a group that we're doing. We're kind of co-hosting um, with a number of other organizations in the Sacramento area, uh, African Drumming Circle. So um, like I mentioned, our circles are a primary service area, but we do other things. And by Googling Safe Black Space, going to our website, uh, looking at our events page. That's where folks can kind of find out what's coming up.
0: So um, do you also connect people to and or provide psychotherapy or therapy or like all that kind of, I would say, I'll put that in the biomedical kind of frame of things.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question because people do frequently reach out. They're looking for support, uh, mental health therapists or providers. However, that is not what we provide. So we uh, identify our services as more of an adjunct to therapy, more of a a community-defined evidence practice, if you will, right? That is around doing what we know works for our people. But because we get frequent requests, folks who are looking for uh, providers who look like them, who may have a better understanding of their life experiences, we have on our website a resource list. So under our resources tab, we have what we call our mind, body, spirit, community resource list. And it is a black providers who kind of fit in those areas, right? So under mind, you'll find therapists and life coaches under body, you might find physicians, Dentist and so on and so forth. And so um, again, some of them are local to the Sacramento area, but because of telehealth, people can access providers that may be doing online therapy or other services. So we try to direct people towards um, that as an option for looking for what it is that they may want or need.
0: Wow, well, wow! Well, when I think about this work, and and you know, having run a nonprofit before in my other life. Well, it's still this life. It was just earlier on in this life. Mm -hmm. Um, I ran a nonprofit. And one of the things that I sort of struggled with is number one, getting enough funding to, to run the organization. And number two, having to provide outcome measures that sometimes did not really align with sort of outcomes that we could achieve that were really helping people because folks saw it as sort of something far more I don't want to say the word traditional, I don't think that's the right word, but conventional, I think might be the word. Okay. Um, so, oh, are we seeing symptom reduction or are we seeing, you know, are, are they going to their treatment? And it's like, but what we were seeing was um, increase in community involvement. Increase of uh, self-esteem, increase at which all of those things are critically important to one's overall health and well-being and to their mental health. But those weren't the outcomes that the funders are looking for. Yeah. So how do you how do you do that as a nonprofit? Sort of um, align the funding to the quote unquote outcomes that also align with the community that you're serving, which is the Black community.
1: Right. What a great question. Um, what I'll start with is just responding that up until maybe the past year, we really have been primarily a voluntary run organization. So we've been building towards our nonprofit status, but kind of doing the work because it feels like there's a need that that can be responded to. It must be responded to for our, you know, for bigger, greater health. However, we've been fortunate in the last uh, year to have funding actually through the MacArthur Foundation And so we are one of about 30 different organizations that um, received funding from them to really build our organizational capacity. And so we are in the midst right now of really trying to get tight and clear about how we will measure our outcomes, how we build kind of our staffing um, in order to scale up and continue to do this and grow um, the circles and the, the trainings and the work that we do. I'm grateful that part of what the MacArthur uh, Foundation funding has done is it's not asking us, right, to provide specific outcomes based on the work that we're doing, but allowing us to kind of build and grow um, based on what what we know at this point is is working. However, what I will say is we are collecting, of course, demographic data and some more subjective experiences. We do ask at every circle, right, What what brought people in? how they're feeling about Black racial stress and trauma, what they're taking away from the circles and how they're feeling about being Black kind of after um, all of the the time that we spend together. And without fail, we are seeing very positive results that people are coming for a sense of community and healing and affirmation and their experiences when they quote unquote walk into the circle are different, right? What they report yeah. at the beginning versus the end of the circle, there's a significant shift. And so to, to me and to us, that's evidence of a positive work and influence. And then we have returners, Right. We have some people that I look, I'm here every month because this is my form of taking care of myself, of self-care, of community. Uh, one of our volunteers, uh, for example, was in the Sacramento but has recently relocated to Mississippi, where she's originally from. And um, she just last week was like, I'm so glad you're continuing to offer these circles online. It's a lifeline um, for me. And mm-hmm. so I, again, anticipate that we will continue, right, in that format and can use some of the the stories and some of the um, outcomes in that way to really describe what it is we're doing. And it it relates to what I was saying earlier as um, identifying our work as more of a a community-defined evidence practice, right, that isn't required, you know, you to necessarily do all the quantitative crunching and numbers and outcomes, but to really look at, well, what does the community say is working? What are kind of more historical ancient ways that prove that such an offering can be helpful?
0: Right. And I I can't even speak enough to the power of stories and narratives. And I I try to help remind folks, because this is, you know, what we find in the peer community, you know, people will say, well, you know, that's anecdotal, that's your story, or that's a story, or that's you all story, <laughs> you know, if it's collective group of people with lived experience. Mm-hmm. And, um and as soon as somebody says it's anecdotal, you know, I'll say, well, actually, it's qualitative, mm-hmm. because qualitative data is and, um you know, research as is just as powerful as quantitative, and helping us actually, you know, to think about um, how are we going to articulate in ways, it's almost doing a code switching. Sure. So instead of saying, "Oh, I'm just going to tell my story," yes, I'm going to tell my story so it can add to the qualitative information that we have about ABCDEFG. Right, so I'm doing a yeah. little bit of code switching with folks. Mm-hmm. Um, we we've had some people talk about the community healing circles before. Yeah, Anola aired, I think, and uh, a few other people. But mm-hmm. um, you know, for the for the sake of people who are listening to this episode and not having to go back to another episode. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the community healing circles? Cause they are power filled. Sure,
1: I, I will say that, but I am love that you mentioned Enola Aird, who is the founder of the community healing network. Mm-hmm. So, yes, Safe Black Space was actually born out of the some of the work of the Community Healing Network and the Association of Black Psychologists. So, to give you that the history, history, the emotional emancipation circles are another healing circle that was developed by ABSI, Association of Black Psychologists, in collaboration with CHN. I'm a member of the Association of Black Psychologists. I'm the president actually of our greater Sacramento chapter here. It's just developing um, and was part of the team that helped to create a racial trauma toolkit, which we developed. can't remember, 2017, after the killings of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling. I'm sure you and many of the listeners remember that's like back to back, right? Mm -hmm. We were helping to promote the um, support of our community members some years ago. And then a year later, when Stefan Clark was killed here in Sacramento, some of my colleagues and mentors were like, girl, you better go ahead and take that toolkit, right? And kind of adapt it and use it and recreate what works for the Sacramento area to do this work. And so um, some of the aspects of what people may experience in the EECs, emotional emancipation circles. Ubuntu circles, Sawobona circles, those are various components that I or others have been involved in, um, that there's there's some similarity, right? And so Mm -hmm. what we, again, did with Safe Black Space is adapted it. We made it uh, more specific to the Sacramento area, uh, at least at that point in terms of our initial beginnings. And then I've made some intentional efforts to connect it with a particular African-centered theory of optimal psychology um, by Dr. Linda James Myers. So it incorporates different aspects of kind of cultural pieces that we know are healing, kind of broadly and then specifically for, for Black people.
0: Snaps, claps, thumbs up, the whole nine yards. <laughs> That's my um way of doing affirmations. I'm not snapping, clapping, and thumbing up right now, but in my mind, I am doing that. Mm-hmm. I know I'm just shooting question after question, but I was just thinking about you know what you're talking about and wondering how and if any of your work is done with young people, because sometimes we get disconnected as young people or the disconnection happens. and then we have to, as adults, reconnect. Yeah. So, uh, do you also work with families and, and young people?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll speak to to that. I think our our primary um, age group is is adults. I think when we look at our numbers, we are attracting primarily kind of forty ish African American women who participate. But what's so interesting, I'm going to respond in maybe three different answers to your question. Which I love seeing. It's it's been a little bit ago now, but um I was mentioning that we are doing virtual circles. And there was one circle in particular where there was a daughter who was maybe 18. Then her mom was also on the line, and so she was maybe a little more middle-aged. I think she was maybe in her 40s or so or 50s. And then grandma, right, who was apparently like in her 70s. So see all on one screen, right, this intergenerational connection to this work was super, super powerful. And to have each of them in their own way talk about how significant it was, was pretty amazing. And that kind of the, one of the most recent things that we've done was actually a, a special circle for a community center here in Sacramento. It's called Roberts Family Development Center. It's in Del Paso Heights. And they invited us to come and do a circle specifically for their staff, who are young adults. We just did it this past weekend. And they were like, okay, we need you to come back. This was so helpful. Um, and so although, again, we weren't working specifically with, you know, those high school students, we were kind of the pipeline to make sure that those 20, 25-year-olds that are, have their capacity and um, the ability to go and do that support, because As I'm sure you know, um, doing the work of serving and healing, it is taxing and it is difficult. And to um, have an opportunity to be held and supported in kind of a sacred space is really important.
0: Yes, exactly. And so how did you actually get into becoming a psychologist? (laughs) Because I think, you know, we also want to look at, you know, as we're talking about, you know, hashtag Black mental health, we're also mm. talking about the different roles black folk can play, not only in taking care of their health and wellness, but where can I play a role? What should I think about my education? And okay. we have a dearth of psychologists and psychiatrists and pharmacists who are who are black. So how do mm. how did you get into into the work?
1: Yeah, well, I will definitely um echo what you're saying we need so many more of us um and all the different avenues of support that are available and um i think within psychologists our numbers are maybe four percent are african american so it's yep. low 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 low, low. Mm-hmm. and and my journey is um you know to, to be transparent was i was struggling as well with my own kind of mental health my own um depression um suicidal behaviors, in part because I felt dis- so disconnected from, um, from myself. I didn't know who to talk to. As I was working through that, I I won't necessarily say where I went to undergrad, but what I will say is during my undergrad <laughs> experience, I didn't even realize that there was a counseling center. I didn't realize right that there was this place that I could go to get support if I needed it. And then, if I did, that there wasn't really anybody that that looked like me or reflected my experience. And so I made a decision um, as, as an undergrad. You know, I switched my major multiple times, um, originally thinking I was going to be a pediatrician and then maybe a teacher, and then landed in psychology after my challenges. Cause I was like, look, mm-hmm. I want to, um, of course, be healthy and, and recover as best as I can. And then I want to be a resource, a tool, an instrument to other people who, again, may or may not even be aware that they can get support or, or what they might be struggling with. And so it was a very kind of intentional shift in me and my um, you know, consciousness around how I wanted to, to show up in the world and, and what I saw as
0: my purpose. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, as we think about encouraging others to think about that path, it's not an easy one and it's kind of sort of a long one, but what kind of things do you think they should be thinking about, you know, even as 18 year olds or 19 year olds, or even returning, because I was a returning student at practically 30. So, Mm -hmm. you know, to get my undergraduate degree and then to go on and get a um, graduate degree. Mm -hmm. So my, my psychology degree is IO psychology, not, not clinical, but anyway, yeah. How do we help people think about sort of what it takes to beyond the passion, right, (laughs) Um, to kind of enter in and do this work?
1: Well, I have a a few different responses. So my first is to acknowledge that there, there are ways that people can help Whether or not they get an advanced degree or, you know, go to Mm -hmm. graduate school in clinical psychology or counseling psychology or social work, right, that there are ways, as we're talking about peer providers or other paraprofessionals that can still offer, I think, many ways, um, support, again, that can sometimes be um, parallel with Mm -hmm quote unquote, professional providers. So that's the one thing I wanted to make sure to say, I think, you know, the other piece in terms of um, thoughts about pursuing, you know, education or psychology, let's say becoming a psychologist. So part of what is what I just spoke to around just my own awareness of some of the struggles I was having, and then my commitment to my, my growth and my recovery and my own treatment so that I could be clear and clean to do the work. Mm. And so what I mean by that is there's, again, plenty of people who are doing the work who may have a history of mental illness or a particular disorders, but they're they're managing them well. And so that's key, right? That if we go into a profession um, and we're hurt and continue maybe to be traumatized, then we may not be as an effective vessel as we want to be. So that would be one consideration is like, all right, this is what you wanna do, just you can do your own self work so that you can be available to um, do the work with someone else. And then my other um, and maybe final comment is, if you, you know, go to grad school or you're pursuing that education Number one, to find a mentor, if possible, right? Someone either on that campus or in that program who gets it, who gets you, who can be a resource and a support for you. And, you know, part of that as well is being clear about kind of what the expectations are so that you can make adaptations as you might need to, to your life, to your schedule, to the demands, because as you mentioned, it is not an easy road for psychologists in particular you know the path is usually 4 years of undergrad so you get your bachelor's degree and then depending on the program i went to the ohio state university in their counseling psychology program but you can get a masters right that usually takes about 2 years and then a phd mine was a masters and um, phd combined program so i did both within 5 years but 2 years masters and 3 to 4 years to get uh, your doctorate which may include if you're doing a practical um, clinical program, doing practicum, you know, getting experience providing therapy, maybe writing a dissertation, a big, huge paper or a master's thesis. And then post-graduation, still, if you're wanting to become licensed, at least, and, and operate as a psychologist, doing a year of a postdoctoral training, similar to, right, to what medical professionals do, right? And so it's it can take a huge commitment, sometimes way too much money and definitely a lot of time. And so we we need more of us. What I will say in, um, in closing to this question is I mentioned I'm the new president of the Association of Black Psychologists, our Greater Sacramento chapter, which are really trying to get off the ground. And there are maybe three colleagues of mine that are all psychologists, Black psychologists, who in the last couple, six months, have been like, I'm moving out of this field, I'm doing something new. I think in part, it's a bit of burnout and overwhelm. And so that kind of hurts my heart, because I'm like, wait, there's one, two, three, four, oh, kind of no. therapists, right, that I might have referred to that are no longer either doing the work, or they're moving out and on to other things. And so that's why I'm like, oh, yeah, we need some of our younger folks and wherever you are in your lifetime, but folks who want to do this, to do this. And and to do it in a way, my my push would be to do it in a way that goes beyond the more traditional, contemporary, mainstream ways of doing therapy. Not that we, because we have to do that training, right? To get licensed, to pass the exams and all of that, but to ensure that we are clear about um, what we need as Black people. And that may not always be the same is what we are yes. taught in the books.
0: I, you know, again, you know, snaps, claps, all of the thumbs up. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I think parallel, we're finding this in our peer workforce too, mm-hmm. that, you know, even though it's not years and years and years of of study, but it is years and years of life experience that you're pouring right. into becoming a, a peer and using that life, to life experience along with the training. You know, yet we also have to be mindful of the toll that it can take, not not just on, well, wait, why is the system making us do it this way and this way we know may be not as helpful to people, but also um, taking into consideration the intersection of, you know, having lived experience and being a person of color and, be, you know, trying to put all of that together and do the work in ways that may not look as conventional as... Uh, you know, most people would, would, would think I'm going to ask another question um, because I'm dying to know, I want to know about the drumming circles. Mm-hmm. I just, oh my gosh, like never done a drumming circle. I do have tons of drums in my music room oh. <laughs> because uh, you know uh, actually when I was uh, hospitalized, there was a music therapist at the hospital and uh, they used all sorts of music, including drums, as a way to engage um patients, both in the uh inpatient as well as in the um intensive outpatient program. So, can you talk a little bit about sort of um, what you do with uh, drums and drumming circles and why that's helpful to people?
1: Yeah, I um first of all, I want to just call this quote that comes to mind with the image of, of drumming happening with the idea that. I wasn't born in Africa, but Africa was born in me. I just love that. I have a t-shirt yes. with that and everything, right? So there's, yes, the, this essence of Africanness, I think that is um, innate. And drumming is a part of that. And so there is a place in which we use drumming, particularly in our in-person circles, kind of as our call to order as um, you know, the backdrop as we pour libation and honor our ancestors, and and so it's it's a uh, something that happens that that shifts in our I believe our kind of bi- biology and in our chemistry, and that allows us to find the rhythm and to move and to heal. And so that's uh, one of the reasons why we encourage and use um, drumming for our circles. But just recognizing that the power of that and, and um, I haven't had the opportunity to attend the one in Lamert Park. I know in um, New York, there's kind of just common, regular drum circles. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we want to be part of that process here.
0: Awesome. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, I love that quote. And and um, I'm also a member of the Muscogee Nation. So drums are also very important as part of my indigenous part of my life too. Right. And so, you know, our, our saying is that, you know, drums are about the heartbeat. So it's, it's very similar to that kind of, even though that's not what I grew up with, matter of fact, it's a very complicated relationship, but it's not what I grew up with, but, but it's a part of who I am. Right. And you can feel it immediately. So as soon as you hear the drum, something happens, like the shivers, the chicken skin, whatever the terms are that we use for kind of that, uh, you know, this like, Oh yeah, look, wake up. You've just been woken up. Right. Yep you know, yep. and you're, you're moving into that essence of who you are, even if you don't know that that's who you are. It's kind of cool. So, so um, mm-hmm. as we wrap up, I want to make sure that um, if there's any, um, I call it wisdom dropping, drop mm-hmm. lots of wisdom and information throughout our conversation. But if there's any one last thing that you want to leave our listeners with piece of wisdom, action, you know, thought it's time to do it. would right. you like to share?
1: Well, what comes to mind most immediately is uh, this idea, I'm just going to say it, which is like, do you boo, right? Do you, do you boo. And and by that, I really mean like the more that we can connect to our, our authentic selves and particularly, right, knowing this is addressing black mental health, like in our beautiful blackness, that there is so much power in that in embracing who we are and claiming our value and supporting not only our our own kind of personal experiences in our lives, but, you know, we, we tend as a people to be very collective people. And so knowing that as I'm healing myself and I'm taking care of myself and I'm doing me, that in fact, I am helping to heal my family, my community, um, that is, it's much bigger than that. And so, um, although I say that a little lightheartedly, right? Like do you boo. It really is be your authentic, beautiful black self. Um, ask for help when you need it, give support when you see it's needed and just show up. Keep showing up and keep hope alive and yeah. stay proud and all the other kind of things I could say, but I think I'll click right. that.
0: That is fantastic fantastic you do you do you you be mine is you be you that's why it is unapologetically black unicorn so i could um actually uh make it shorter into you be you go you know be you be authentically you so thank you for sharing those beautiful words of wisdom to close this out and uh for all of our listeners this is you know something that more people need to hear so please remember to subscribe um listen, first of all, but you've mm-hmm. already listened in if you've gotten this far. So subscribe, share, comment. Um, more people need to hear this kind of information and join us next time on unapologetically black unicorns and hashtag black mental health. Thanks so much for joining again, Dr. Christie. Mm-hmm.
1: Thanks for having me.